sing that chorus one more time together. Here we go. Every tongue. Every tongue in heaven and earth shall declare your glory. Every knee shall bow at your throne. In worship you will be exalted, O God. And your kingdom shall not pass away, O ancient of days. Amen. Lord, we trust in you. You are immovable. You are unchanging. You are good. You promise that you will never forsake us nor leave us. Indeed, uh, we honor you with our lips today. We open your holy scriptures, Lord, to grow our faith, to be reminded of your greatness and how you lead and establish our footsteps. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, before you have a seat, meet somebody you don't know. Shake a hand. Give a hug. Say hi. Good morning, church. Good morning. You guys are alive and awake this morning. That worship was awesome. If you don't know me, my name is Sarah. I help out with the social media here, and Amy is gone, so I'm subbing in this week for her. Um, most of the announcements you can all find on the app and online, but just in case, we're going to give you a little update. So Jesse's leadership class is starting um, this Tuesday, the 27th, and that's going to be at the Finch's house. And so if you guys need that address, you can either talk to Andy or Amber or call the church office. Um, and then you can just register through the app for that. Um, this is going to be the last week to give gift cards for the Alder Creek um, staff appreciation gifts. So you can drop those off to Brad or the church office. And then um, two more things. The Women's Mentoring, the Titus II program, is going to start October 6th. And you can register where? On the app. That's right. <laughs> Lastly, the Trunk or Treat um, candy drive is starting. So right outside these two doors, there should be some bins for um, candy. So next time you're at Costco or Target, feel free to pick up a bag and drop it off because we go through quite a bit. So with that being said, we're going to welcome up Brad Beers. I was in the meeting. I just want to make sure you didn't fall. Uh, I was in the meeting when Sarah was asked to do announcements, and she, her exact words were, I don't want to, but I will. So make sure that you tell her that she did a great job serving the church that way. Um, there are some people with stacks of Bibles in their hands because we are going to use them this morning. If you didn't bring one and you want to borrow one of ours, then just wave at, uh, wave at Frank here. Looks like he's got one, and, and Dave's got some other ones. So if you, if you need some... Wave at them uh, and use that Bible. If you don't have one and you like that one, keep it. We want you to have a Bible. That is 
a tremendous source and blessing to your life. Um, my name is Brad. Like Sarah said, I'm one of the leaders here, and I get to continue our series in Mark this morning. But before I do, I'm going to give you one more announcement, just because as a church, uh, I know that there's a lot of things happening. We've even got fun. You might be looking around going, man, the room seems kind of empty. We got like women's retreat going on. There's fundamentals of the faith going on. There's so many things that are constantly happening, uh, and we try to keep you apprised of what's going on. One thing that is that we're going through uh, as church leadership right now, we have a phenomenal youth pastor here by the name of Caleb Dero, and his lovely wife and their gorgeous children have been uh, living in a house that has been, uh, they've been renting it, and that has been subsidized by a member of the church. Um, and through a series of strange circumstances, that is coming to an end. And so, as many of you know, if you've lived here for a while, you know that housing here is not the easiest thing to try to navigate here. Um, and we're not really sure what God is doing with it, whether um, the Deros are going to need to move to another location and rent there. Uh, obviously, he'd love to buy a home, but many of you would probably be aware of all of the difficulties that are associated with that. We don't necessarily know what God is doing with this opportunity, but we want to see it as an opportunity, and we want to talk to you as our church family about that fact, that if God somehow lays it on your heart to try to help with that opportunity, um, either talk directly with Caleb, who's with our middle school students right now doing Sunday school, otherwise I would point out uh, to him, but he uh, is loud, and everything that you would expect a youth pastor looks like, that's, that's Caleb. So you would see that You'll see him. And then if you don't know who that is, but God laid it on your heart, call the office and we will uh, we'll start working through it together. So that being said, I'm going to continue in chapter 10 of Mark today. Go ahead and open your Bibles up to Mark chapter 10. And uh, some of you will, will notice that yet again, he doesn't do this to me intentionally, but uh, Jesse sometimes will give me an opportunity to speak and in doing so, give me doozy of passages to try to navigate through with, uh, with a room here. I get another, set, another such opportunity this morning, and so I'm going to start this morning with a disclaimer, okay? Uh, the message this morning may make you uncomfortable. Uh, you might experience symptoms of dizziness, nausea, vomiting, the desire to throw things at me, uh, or maybe even question if you should keep coming to this church. Um, all of that is normal. My hope is that what you will see is this. Only a pastor who loves you is willing to make you feel uncomfortable. Jesus actually does this in verse 21 of our passage today, which was a great encouragement to me to see him set the example for me. Um, we'll talk more about that in a moment, but just at the outset, trust me, I take no joy in making you feel bad about yourself. Um, but I, I love you, and I have to tell you what Jesus has taught. Um, so please know that if I offend you this morning, that's not my goal. But if by showing you the heart of Jesus, and that's what you will hear me say a lot, the heart of Jesus... If by showing you the heart of Jesus, it causes you some momentary discomfort for your long-term health, then I accept whatever the consequences are. That being said, uh, I'm going to ask you to stand as we often do. It's a custom that we have here to use our bodies 
to remind ourselves how significant it is that we are reading God's words. We're going to cover all of uh, 10, 1 through 31 today, but I just want to, for this time, just read verses 15 and 16. Jesus has this way of pointing out when he really, really needs you to pay attention, and this is the way he says it. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and began blessing them and laying his hands upon them. Jesus, this time is yours. These are your people. They don't belong to me. I know that you love them. I know that you care for them. That you know the depth of what's going on inside of them. All the joys and the pains. And you've entrusted them to me in this time. And you know that that is something that I take seriously. So Holy Spirit, by your power, may this time be only that which would show your greatness and help us understand you better. Amen. You can be seated. So right before Mark chapter 10, Jesus tells his disciples, hey guys, um, it's getting pretty close to the time. Uh, I'm going to get turned over into the hands of men and they're going to kill me. And f- for those of you that were here, the disciples' general response was what? Like, what's he talking about? But yeah, exactly. What is going on? I like that. What is going on? I don't know. He's always saying weird things. Let's just like keep going with it and see what happens. And so Jesus starts his physical journey to what he actually had told them he was about to do. That's where we pick it up in chapter 10, verses 1. And rising, verse 1, in rising up, he, Jesus, went from there to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and the crowds gathered around him again, and according to his custom, he once more began to teach them. Jesus has actually been teaching primarily, here I'll kind of look with you at this imaginary map of, of Israel over here. Here it is, that's why I'm doing this. Israel's here, the Sea of Galilee's here, the Dead Sea's here, the Jordan River goes between the two, and the Judean region is down here where Jerusalem is. Jesus is coming around this way and is on the east side of the Jordan known as the Perean region. Even though he's been ministering primarily in Galilee, word has been out about this rabbi Jesus. Something significant is there is going on there and he's attracting crowds. So Jesus being the rabbi that he is teaches those crowds and then we get verse 2. And some Pharisees came up to him testing him and began to question him whether it was lawful for a man to divorce a wife. If you're new to the church, if you haven't been here before, if you haven't been along for the journey in Mark, the quickest description I can give you of the Pharisees is that these were the religious leaders of the people of Israel. They were kind of a mix between lawyers and religious teachers and a little bit, they had some political power though they weren't necessarily fully in charge and they didn't like Jesus. That's the quick description of Pharisees because Jesus... If you were to pick one group of people that Jesus was hard on and wouldn't give any slack to, it was the religious leaders. 
because they were the ones that were supposed to know better. They were the ones that were supposed to be carrying the word of God to people, but they had distorted it to their own benefit. So when the Pharisees came to question him in verse 2, the word that's here that's translated testing him or questioning him could probably also be translated interrogating him. The Pharisees were not fans of Jesus, and they did not come on a basic fact-finding mission to try to like, hey, let's just figure out what Jesus has to say about this thing. They were looking for something on which they could nail him. What's the topic that they pick? Is it lawful for a man to divorce a wife? Here's the reason why they picked this. Yes, it is something that would have been talked about during that time frame, but it was something that even within the Pharisees, there was significant disagreement about. So you could pick one side and still be wrong. And that would give them the opportunity to destroy Jesus. There was a side of the Pharisees known as kind of like the, the, the way of thinking of Shammai. They believed that divorce was only allowed if one of the parties had committed sexual immorality. Another school of thought of the Pharisees called the Hillel school, they, they were way more liberal and saw way more opportunity for an individual to get a divorce if it was necessary. Look at what Jesus responds with. I love this, by the way. What happens normally when somebody interrogates you or sticks you into a corner? You probably, if you're like me, you like get all defensive, right? I mean, that's typically what you do. You try to justify yourself. Jesus, when he's questioned, what does he do? Rabbi stuff. He throws a question back at him. He answered and said, well, what did Moses command you? And they said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. That was their response. They're making reference to Deuteronomy chapter 24. Stick your finger in Mark, and we're going to briefly go over to Deuteronomy chapter 24, because I want you to see the law that they were actually using to, to promote the position that they answered for Jesus. That was a really long run-on sentence. That was terrible. But if you like run-on sentences, I've got one for you. Chapter 24. Check this one out. Chapter 24, Deuteronomy, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. These were the books of the law for the people of God. In Deuteronomy chapter 24, starting in verse 1, this is what they're referencing, the Pharisees. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he had found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out from the house. Sentence is still going. And she leaves his house and goes and becomes another man's wife. Still going. And if the latter husband turns against her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house. Or if the latter husband dies who took her to be his wife same sentence. Then her former husband who sent her away is not allowed to take her again to be his wife since she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord and you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. I'm not sure 
if you might be capable of doing so, but could you come up with a more specific scenario than this giant sentence? I mean, this was a very detailed scenario. In case you didn't necessarily like catch up on it, basically, if I marry somebody and for some reason of indecency, I divorce her and she goes and gets married again, and then either through death or another divorce, I don't get to have her back as my wife. That's what the law actually says. So when Jesus asks them, His secondary question when they're saying, hey, Jesus, what's the deal with divorce? Well, what did Moses command you? Well, he said you could write a certificate of divorce and send her away. Do we see that implied by Deuteronomy 24? Yeah, it seems to be implied that under certain circumstances, a divorce was okay. But there was a deeper heart behind it. And what Jesus is going to show them is that the divorce didn't solve the initial problem, and it actually created the potential for further problems. Jesus says this in verse 5. Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female, For this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh. Consequently, they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. See, what Jesus is trying to point out in verses 5 through 9 is that the Pharisees, in looking at that law and going through their legal interpretation of it, were missing God's heart. Jesus could rightly say that when we made this law, when we made this law, we were doing it because we knew that you were broken people and that broken people have broken hearts and that broken people with broken hearts typically are those that break other people's hearts. But before that law was made, God had showed you what his heart was for this matter. And he quotes from initially first Genesis chapter 1, Genesis 1.27, that God had made them male and female. This is the first poem written in the Bible. Your uh, text of scripture that you have in front of you may have it set aside or indented, or it might be in all caps to try to indicate not only that it is an Old Testament reference, but also that it's a reference to the first poem in the Bible that is so incredibly important for you to try to understand, not just for the issue of divorce. Yes, it's crucial for this, but also for the nature of humanity as our culture around us continues to try to figure out how to navigate this, what Genesis 1 tells us is that God made mankind man and woman. He made them male and female. And then the poem goes on to say, in his image, he created them. God created male and female. In his image, he created them, teaching us a crucial truth about mankind that maleness is not just the image of God. That femaleness is not just the image of God. That the image of God is displayed when maleness and femaleness unite. That is when the image of God is is displayed to mankind. 
And when that happens, what God has joined, let no one separate. That's why Jesus quotes from Genesis chapter 2. For this cause a man shall leave, this is verse 7 of, 10, of Mark 10, for this, for this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and the two shall become one flesh. They're no longer two, but one flesh. Why? Because the union of these two genders is the beautiful picture and expression of God's image to mankind. When this unity occurs, it's a travesty for God's image in mankind to be separated. So when Jesus addresses this issue, he's trying to get towards the heart of what he meant for mankind to display his own image. But we get this new window, another window here. In a moment after this day, the, the disciples are sitting there with Jesus and they want a little bit more explanation. Can you give me a bit more? Because it didn't seem like you fully answered the question per se, Jesus. Verse 10, in a house, the disciples began questioning him about this. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she herself divorces her husband and marries another man, she is committing adultery. As this inner ring asks Jesus for more explanation, Jesus tells them, look, divorce is bad enough further remarriage makes it worse. Now, there are plenty of passages other than this in which Jesus talks about divorce. And there are conditions in which Jesus does say that divorce would be permitted, but it has never been the design. The point is that we have to move beyond looking for what am I technically or legally allowed to do and instead, ask ourselves what best reflects God's heart on this matter. The Pharisees, in their attempt to trap Jesus, tried to get him to commit to a set of rules for human behavior, but Jesus wouldn't fall for the trap. Here's what we learn from him. When your marriage is on the rocks, for whatever reason, we cannot be looking for loopholes, technicalities, and excuses. Our response should always be, God is in this marriage. His image to mankind is on the line. What can we do to save this thing? In a world of disposable marriages and limp promises, fight for your marriage. Fight for it, because you will have to fight for it. Now look, more needs to be said on this topic to fully flesh out everything about divorce. I'll grant that. But not only do I not believe that I cannot cover from this stage everything about that issue, I believe that doing so would miss the heart of what Mark wants to communicate in this passage. So we're going to keep going. Look at verse 13. And they were bringing children to him so that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. So while Jesus was in the crowds, it was a first century environment. I know that if you've been part of a church for a long time, you're probably used to a room like this, where it's silent. Like if I stop talking, it's pretty quiet. Pretty quiet, 
right? Most of you could fall asleep, especially since it's a little warm in here today. If you go to a church in some other culture, pretty much any other culture, there's kids like running up and down the aisles and like being grabbed by their parents and like thrown into one room. There's like crying and screaming because kids are annoying. <laughs> when Jesus had a crowd around him, that's what the environment was. It wasn't this silent little, we're all gonna sit and fold our hands and everything's gonna be perfect. There were kids going everywhere. And these parents, knowing that Jesus was a pretty big deal and something special was there, they were wanting to try to bring their kids over. Now, Jesus had already used kids in chapter 9 as an example to teach his disciples, hey guys, you need to be about the worth of the lowly. It is important to me that you teach these people that are seen as unimportant. But he had another lesson that he wanted to teach them, not just about humility and their willingness to serve, but another thing. When Jesus saw this, verse 14, that the kids were trying to get up to Jesus and the disciples were holding him back. Look at this, look at this, look at this. When Jesus saw this, he was what? Indignant. It's not a word we use very often, is it? I know you may not be super familiar with it, but I bet you could probably answer this question. Does indignant mean mildly miffed? No. No. Indignant is the type of rage you saw in your father's eyes when you were about to receive the most savage beating you'd ever received in your lifetime for something you'd done wrong. Right? Now, most of you are like, no, we don't treat kids like that. Okay. All right. <laughs> I'm sure you've seen indignant at some point. Jesus was not mildly miffed at this situation with the kids being withheld from him. He was furious. And he said to them, permit the children to come to me. Do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. And then we get 15 and 16, which we already read this morning. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it at all. And he took them in his arms and he began blessing them, laying his hands upon them. Now, there are two things to learn from Jesus' response in his words here, one of which we've kind of already covered last week, so I'll just briefly gloss over it, that children are important to Jesus because age has no bearing on, the value, on your value in God's kingdom. It doesn't matter if you're young or if you're old, if you're unimportant or you are important, whatever those social strata are that is dictating your environment chances are Jesus doesn't play by those rules. And in this one where the kids were present but not important, Jesus says, no, 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 no. Not only are they important, that's point one, but point two, I want you to see this. And remember, I pointed this out to you already in verse 15. When Jesus really wants you to listen to him, it's like, hey, 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 gather around. Take it, whatever your analogy is, your coach, take a knee. This is the time I need you to hear me. Verse 15, truly I say to you, Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. This, this verb here, this keyword, it, if you don't receive or welcome the kingdom of God like a little child. You ever spend time, time around little kids? 
If you haven't, you should. Because, like I already said, kids are annoying. And they're messy. And they're loud. And they have all kinds of needs. They're selfish. And they teach us that we are just like them. Just like them. Yeah, we disguise it a little differently. But we're just like them. But there's something special that you see about kids. There's a beauty in their kids. It's uh, about quarter after right now. I help out with the nursery once a month because I love babies. I'm weird like that. And in about five, ten minutes, they're going to have snack time. And it's snack time. The kid that has been running around this entire time, like striking other kids with a train, he's going to hear the words snack time, and he's going to run over to a table, and he's going to sit down and wait there. And then a teacher is going to grab a jar of veggie straws and bring them over. And in that moment, that kid is going to start quivering with excitement, reaching out like, oh, and they're going to get poured on a paper towel next to one kid, and he's going to start grabbing those before it gets to him. Because when kids receive things, do they receive things that they want calmly? No. They receive things hungrily, greedily, drastically. My friends, some of us are far too calm about how we receive and deal with the kingdom of God. I've had conversations with people before. You know, do you believe in Jesus? Yeah, yeah, I, you know, I, I think so, yeah. Okay. Let's talk more about this. Hey, Jack, you ready for snack time? Yeah, snack. That, that sounds pretty good. I mean, I mean if it's convenient for you. I don't want to talk about anything that might make you feel weird. Is that what happens? If you don't know the clear answer yet, we need nursery workers. I'll teach you in there. Okay? That's not what happens. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God, like a child, shall not enter it. Look, I'm not suggesting that somehow you should fakely whip up your emotional response to God. That's not what I'm trying to tell you. But if you are not, at least somewhat regularly, Becoming impressed by God. By seeing not just what Jesus has done, but what he is doing around you now. It's probably time to ask yourself, am I really seeking first the kingdom of God? I know I'm meddling. I know that feels a little bit uncomfortable to hear somebody say directly, but I need to hear that. In these moments, when I start to realize that I might be getting a little bit apathetic about the fact that I'm carrying the truth that all men have always sought since the dawn of time, and I carry that hope with me, and it's been entrusted to me, the treasure that anyone could possibly ever have, and I'm ho-hum about it, something, some wires are crossed in my brain, and they need to get uncrossed, like post-haste. Which gives us the last section. Verse 17. 
as Jesus was sending out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and began asking him, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Look at this guy, this new person that we're, that we're introduced to. He's submissive to Jesus. First of all, he runs to Jesus. In that culture, as in our culture, if somebody is sprinting towards you, that's weird, right? Whoa, bro, back it up, right? Right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> then when he gets there, what's he do? What's the first thing he does? He kneels. This man is submissive to the rabbi Jesus. And he asks him the question that all men ask in some way, shape, or form. What do I got to do to get to God? We see that this guy, he has some belief. And he's looking to the right person to try to validate this belief. He's not in a terrible spot. Jesus, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw this word out here. It kind of has a negative connotation but it's fun. Jesus kind of toys with him first. <laughs> just a little bit. Just a little. Look at what he does. First, verse 18. This is fun. Jesus says to him, why do you call me good? No one's good except God alone. Like Jesus first, like ironically says to the man, do you know who you're dealing with right now? But let's just set that aside, okay? Verse 19. We know, or you know, the commandments. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. Don't defraud. Honor your father and mother. And this guy's feeling pretty good about himself, right? This guy is on his knees before the rabbi. And the rabbi tells him, obey the, the commandments. Verse 20, teacher, I've kept all these things from my youth. Jesus says, look, if you're trying to get to God, obey the commandments. And the guy goes, I have. And then we get my favorite verse of the passage. Verse 21. And looking at him, stop, looking at him. Where's he been looking before? Right? This is like, has this whole conversation been happening like Jesus staring off into the middle distance? like trying to be all dramatic. I bet you Jesus has been looking at him the entire time. You'll forgive me by imposing a little bit of what I think this means here. When you're looking at me, I'm sorry, but this is what you get. This is about the best I can give you, okay? I try to watch my weight a little bit. I do some exercise. This is, this is what I got to work with. But this is not me, right? This thing... This thing's going to be worm food in a little while. And the me that's really the me, that's still going to exist. And I kind of feel like that's what Jesus is looking at. And looking at him, he's seeing this guy. I know who you are. I know everything that's brought you to this moment. Second thing. Jesus, and looking at him, Jesus loved him. What? I mean, like anybody that's been around church for a while, that ought to, like, mess with your theology a little bit, 
right? From like, if you started in the kids, Jesus loves the little children. Okay, Jesus loves. Jesus loves me this. I, okay, Jesus loves. Okay, so if there's anything that Jesus does, he must love. Why point out that Jesus loved this man when looking to the depth of who he was? It's because he's about to ask him to do the hardest thing that could possibly be asked of this man. Jesus looked at him and loved him and was willing to make him uncomfortable and said, you're still missing one thing. Go sell everything that you own. Give it to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven and then come follow me. But at these words, his face fell and he went away grieved because he was one who owned much property. Jesus looked at this man, seeing the core of who he was, knew exactly what it was that he needed to hear in that moment, and it wasn't the check boxes of all the things that he had done right. Jesus looked right to the heart of where this man's heart was and said, hey, you're going to have to give up your wealth. And that was the one thing the guy couldn't do. Jesus in that tense moment says verse 23 Jesus looking around said to his disciples how hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God Jesus starts to teach them about a worldview shift that is necessary for the people in front of them and probably for those of us in this room today telling us that poverty it's hard. Most of you in this room, you've never been poor. You might tell me stories about how you were poor. You were poor in America, okay? Most of you. Some of you had it, and you really went through it, and I don't mean to minimize it, but you were, okay. Poverty's hard, though. Jesus is going to start to teach us that wealth is even harder. Look at verses 25 or let's just pick it up from 24 here. The disciples were amazed at his words. And Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they were even more astonished. And they said to him, Well, then who can be saved? And looking at them, Jesus said, With men... It's impossible. But not with God. For all things are possible with God. See, I need to bring out this worldview for them. Remember that these are Jews in the first century, and their way of understanding how God works with mankind is that if you have stuff, if you have wealth, if you are well off, that was a sign that you were well off with God. That if you were doing things right, God would give you stuff. The wealthy, those are the ones killing it in the kingdom of God. So when Jesus says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into heaven, that's why they're going, what? That doesn't make any sense. They were astonished. I don't understand. Who can be saved? Jesus responds and says, he didn't answer the question initially, so Jesus, 
and says, hey, first, you're going to be okay with all things. In all things, God can do it. Now, then we get to hear from our favorite disciple who in these moments of awkwardness where the moments isn't quite making sense and he solves the problem with the only tool that he feels like he can commonly solve the problem, which would be his mouth. Verse 28. Peter began to say to him, Hey, hey, look, behold, hey, pay attention. We've left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there's no one who's left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my name's sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he shall receive a hundred times as much. Now, in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. Look, I'm telling you that your understanding of how the kingdom works is incomplete. You think wealth is the marker for who's coming in first. Verse 31, many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. I'm telling you guys, the way that the kingdom really works is that some of the most insignificant are the front runners. So what do we see in this passage of Jesus' heart about money? Is Jesus telling us that wealth is bad? No. Is he telling us that poverty is good? No. Do we ever see Jesus at any other point tell anyone else that they need to sell everything and come follow him? No. He's telling us that he wants to be involved in our life to the layer or the level, even down to our pocketbook. Some of the wealthy need to reorient their priorities. Their wealth is at best only of minor importance, and it might be the very thing that's keeping them from Jesus. Some of the wealthy need to see the danger that they're in, relying on wealth as their God, instead of Jesus as their king. But also, some of the poor need to stop seeing the rich as immoral just because they have wealth. Some of the poor need to stop thinking that if they just had more money, my problems would be solved. Sometimes the poor spend more time trying to look wealthy or be wealthy, causing them to obsess about wealth more than the wealthy. The heart of Jesus is that your wealth or your poverty is navigated by your commitment to him. I'm going to ask the musicians to come up as we prepare to respond to this message with some more worship songs. As they're coming up, I'm going to close. And I'm going to say out loud what's probably in some of your hearts Brad, you've been getting a little too personal into my life this morning. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I, can't, I can't properly describe to you 
the fear and trembling that has been the part of me preparing this message over the last couple of weeks, knowing some of the things that I would have to say. But we have to remember that God is involved in our day-to-day lives. He cares about our marriages. He cares about our relationships. He cares about our finances. And in and through it all, he cares most about whether we will welcome him into these nitty-gritty details of our lives as excitedly as a toddler longs for snack time. But here's the beauty of it. If we will allow him to be involved, if we are willing to submit all aspects of our life to him and welcome him into them hungrily, he takes us into his arms like the snot-nosed, messed-up children that we are. And he loves us, and he blesses us, he forgives us, and he brings us the eternal life now and forever. I want to pray this for you. Jesus, we bow before you as king. This world has its rulers and they all think that they're important. And one day they will be shown for what they are. You have always been king. You will always be king. And it's because you are in charge of our lives that we give them to you. It makes sense. But I can't do that for these people. I know that they have to do it themselves. Holy Spirit, I beg you, carve away the cancer of sin in the lives of the people here. Carve it away in my heart. The things that would blockade me from recognizing you as king, from submitting to you and your instructions. God, it's so foolish when we would pursue anything other than you. Pull us tighter to you. Let us enjoy the embrace of a God who blesses the unimportant. God, we give you the praise and the honor because you deserve it. Friends, let's stand together. I'm going to close in a couple songs for you to respond. Indeed, the Lord tells us that uh, He is close, He forgives. It's an opportunity for you, you maybe, to confess sin. So um, let's uh, enter in and praise Him.